My dearest brothers and sisters, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you. I'm going to give a talk or a little nasiha, a little advice on some aspects of the farewell speech of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And in the context of parenting and in the context of giving tarbiyah to our children, I think I want to pick out two main aspects of the speech of the Prophet The first one is as he begins, when he says to the Ummah, O people, listen to me earnestly, worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's the first point. And then the other point, which is quite connected, which is the famous hadith that we mention over and over again, when we say that an Arab is no better than a non-Arab and a white is no better or is not superior over a black and vice versa except in good deeds and piety, in taqwa, in righteousness. Now these are oft-repeated cliches in our tradition. We're always talking about worshipping Allah, especially to our children, and we always talk about, you know, we're all the same, right? We're like the teeth of a comb. We're equal in rights, in dignity, in spirituality, and all of these things. You know, didn't you hear the Prophet wasallam? he said that a white is not better than a black, and a black is not better than a white, and an Arab is no better than a non-Arab, and a non-Arab is no better than an Arab, and all of these things. And we, we get so proud concerning these amazing virtues and these ethics that, that our tradition has. But I think what we have to do, brothers and sisters, is learn to internalize this. Because we have moved traditionally from an ummah of internalization to an ummah of memorization. Because if you look into the Arabic and you look into our classical spiritual tradition, you see that when they were taught to memorize something, it didn't mean memorize it like an iPad. It didn't mean memorize it like a computational system. It didn't mean memorize it like you're a database. That's not the reality of Islam, but rather when they memorized something, they internalized it. It became part of their spiritual being. And this is why traditionally we always, we always had this concept of tarbiyah, this concept of cultivating the virtues in Islam within the spiritual DNA of a Muslim. But now what do we do? We throw the hadith at someone, we throw the ayah at someone, and we think, kun fayakul, and they're going to change. It doesn't work that way. Even the Prophet ﷺ had tarbiyah. Who was his scholar? Who was his scholar? It was the angel. Who was the scholar of the Sahaba? The Prophet ﷺ. Who were the teachers of the tabi'een? It was the Sahaba, right? There was this almost this unwritten spiritual law that you don't just learn from abstract words and writing. You're not confined in the prison of ink and paper, but rather you see the whole thing for what it is. You don't just see the blobs of ink and think, oh, these are nice words. It's very similar to the analogy that Al-Ghazali was talking about when he tried to basically debate against the atheist of the time. In his Alchemy of Happiness, he says these type of people are like ants walking on a book and someone's writing on the book and they can't see the words for what they are and they can't see someone's actually holding the pen, right? This is very similar to, to what we're doing now. 
spiritually, it's like we're going towards that point of view, which I think we need to nip it in the bud and really stop this because we have to learn to internalize the words that we memorize. Because Islam is about a state of being, not a state of doing. We're not human doings, we're human beings. We be, we do, and we become. If you just stop at basic abstract memorization, it won't change you. There's this unwritten spiritual law, this tarbir process, that first and foremost, the parent has to take charge. And then the wider society, and then our ulama. You know, when I see lots of organizations teaching, for example, I instruct for an organization which is an institute. Brother Saad Taslim also instructs for an institute. There are many great institutes around. May Allah preserve them and bless them. But I think that is basically a symptom of a cause. Because traditionally, we didn't need institutes. Because traditionally, we had this environment of tarbiyah where when people go to the masajid, they would respect the imam and their scholar and they'll sit under his feet. Because wallahi, brothers and sisters, you will learn from a scholar that you will never learn from a book. Even if he reads from a book. I am telling you from my own experience, and I've learned things the hard way. I've learned things the hard way around so many mistakes and they're all publicly available. Alhamdulillah, humility is good for the soul. So from that point of view, you need to really understand that you will learn from a scholar what you won't learn from a book, even if he's reading the book to you. Because there's something that's going on here, something that's being passed from heart to heart. And this is very significant. So when the Prophet said, oh people, listen to me earnestly, Worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We need to inculcate this in the hearts of our children. What worship is. And I mentioned this yesterday. I touched upon this yesterday. Worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not a thing that we do because it's an identity. We all suffer from an identity complex now. Who am I? Am I Pakistani? Or am I American? Am I American Pakistani? Am I Muslim American Pakistani? Or Pakistani American Muslim? Or am I Desi Pakistani, half Bengali, half Lebanese, whatever's happening these days, right? Alhamdulillah. But the point is, we have an identity complex. And what happens, the concept of worship is inserted in that need to belong. I think that's a problem. We should not socialize our children that worship just becomes some kind of identity, like you're wearing a new piece of cloth, or you're wearing a hat, or it's something that labels you. This is problematic because worship is not a hat that you wear. Worship is something that comes through you. It's a derivative of your own innate nature. We have to tap into the fitrah of our children to understand that there is something created within them. Fitrah, fatara, fatrun, fatarahu. Something is created within them by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is unchanging. That they know Allah is a reality and they know that Allah deserves to be worshipped. So our job as parents is not to give them a label or socialize them or give them an identity, but to make them realize who they are from within. That's the key. And this is why the ulama say the way to awaken the fitrah is giving them good tarbiyah, is giving them Quran, making them internalize things. It cleans the fitrah. Imagine the fitrah is like a lens. And this lens, if it's clean, the child can see the haq, can see the truth. But if, if this lens is dirty or it's clouded, it requires some cleaning. 
And that's the job of the parents. That's the job of da'wah. That's the job of the Quran, of the sunnah, of even sound rational arguments. That is the job to clean the fitrah. And we have to understand it from that point of view. And the first lesson that we learn concerning this is to teach our children what worship really is. Worship is that you fall in love with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Worship is that you fall in love with Allah. Worship is that you want to know Allah because you love Him and you want to know Him more. Worship is that you want to obey Allah via your free will because it's the most rational and spiritual thing to do. Worship is that you want to show the child that all their acts of worship should be directed to Allah alone. And what we need to teach our children is the concept of gratitude because I truly believe that gratitude is the key to open the door to worship. If you see Surah Al-Fatiha, it is the summary of the whole of the Qur'an. And a summary of the Qur'an is Tawheed, is affirming the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And what's the first line in Surah Al-Fatiha? Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. All grateful, perfect gratitude and thanks belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah is setting the scene here now to open the door to understand what it means to have a relationship with your Rabb. To start from a premise, from the basis of gratitude. And we need to talk to our children about this on a daily basis to make them, make them understand this. You need to be grateful to your Rabb. Who is your Rabb? The one that nurtures you, the one that loves you, the one that owns everything, is the master of everything, that maintains everything, that sustains everything, that created everything. This is what it means that you have a Rabb and you, you are his khalq, you are his created thing. And there is a connection between the khalq and al-khaliq the created thing and the creator. And that relationship is master and slave. Master and slave. And therefore they should understand that everything is due to Allah. Everything is due to Allah. And we should be grateful and we should be grateful for the ability to be grateful. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that we can never enumerate the blessings of Allah. And I wanted to find an interesting strategy to basically show this to children to Muslims, to non-Muslims, to those in pain, to those who are in a state of pleasure, to really show that what Allah is saying is haq here. And I think I found an example. Brothers and sisters, the thing that keeps us alive, the thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses as a physical cause, as the asbab, as the cause for us to stay alive is our heartbeat. I want you one day to sit at home even with your children and put the phones away, put the TV away, put the entertainment away and just reflect on your heartbeat for an hour. You would realize how limited you are, how contingent you are, how dependent you are. You're going to realize that you don't control your own existence. You're going to see how weak you are as well. And you're going to realize who is the divine master. And I want you to start thinking about if your heart were to stop right now what would you feel? And I want you to ask yourself this question. If I, if I only had a thousand heartbeats left, what would I do? In actual fact, if you had two options, to have a thousand heartbeats or to have a thousand heartbeats but with the ability to have an extra thousand heartbeats if you gave me $20,000, everybody would choose the second option. And even if they didn't have the money, they would find it as best as they can just to get the extra thousand heartbeats. 
this shows us how precious one heartbeat is. Just one heartbeat. Just precious one heartbeat. Now I have a challenge for you. I want you to count every single heartbeat you've ever experienced in your life. It's practically impossible. For the first two or three years, you couldn't count, so you got backlog. You're sleeping, backlog. Eating, going toilet, speaking with people, backlog. In actual fact, even if you could speak from day zero or day one, you could still never count all your heartbeats. It's a practical impossibility. And yet this one heartbeat is the physical cause that Allah has given us in order to keep us alive. And our life is something that we don't earn, we don't own, and we don't necessarily deserve. We can't even create a fly. We're not the source of life and existence. So that one heartbeat is the physical cause that Allah has used to keep us alive. And this precious gift of life we don't earn, we don't own, and we don't deserve. But it's given to us freely every moment. Freely every moment. So if someone gives you something you don't earn, you don't own, you don't deserve, but it's so precious, how should that make you feel? Grateful, even if you're suffering. Even if you're happy. Regardless of the situation, you've been in a state of gratitude. Grateful to whom? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is why don't be like the one who receives a thousand dollars every day. And after a year, he starts thanking the thousand dollars. This is why shirk and atheism and all of these isms and schisms are totally incoherent, anti-spiritual and irrational. So much to be thankful for, but I don't know who to be thankful to. And this is very important to inculcate in the hearts and minds of our children. And the way this happens is not to say to them, be grateful better. That's not going to work. Children don't listen. They see. Children don't listen. They observe. You could give a child a book, it won't change them. But if you, if you show them behaviors, it will change them. This is why the ulama, what they would do, they wouldn't say sadaqah diminishes wealth. They wouldn't say give sadaqah, it purifies your sins. What they would do is, here's the money, go to the marketplace, get a bunch of apples and give it to everybody and you can't have none. Just to show what sadaqah means. That is self-sacrifice for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That when you're a parent, you see your children, you're holding their hands and you're walking down the street and you individually give them a dollar each and you tell them, give it to that man who's asking for money. It's an action. And then when you teach them the Islamic ethics, the hadith, the Quran, and do the action, then you bring it together. You create a holistic human being. But unfortunately, many of us were just talking. We're not walking. And this is why there's a big disconnect. I taught my children all of these things. Fine, but what were you doing? You could say don't backbite, but you're backbiting, backbiting at home. You could say give sadaqah, but all you do is spend on your alloy wheels, your crazy weddings, and lots of gold for mahar, right? You think it works that way? How many of you know what's a good diet? Put your hand up, be honest. Greens, vegetables, right? Is that good? Is greens good for you? Vegetables good for you? Okay. What did you have yesterday? Donut. And we become donuts, don't we? That's the problem. Don't tell me knowledge is going to change you. Knowledge won't change you. Like Imam Malik said, he said, true knowledge is the, is the kind of light that Allah puts in your heart as a result of internalizing what you know abstractly. 
There's a disconnect between our knowing and our being, and we have to link those things together. One way of doing that is by one, understanding it. Number two, enrolling people in your behavior. If you want love at home, be loving. If there's no love at home, there's no point waiting for love. Oh, they don't love me. You know, one Reva Hindu sister came up to me once and said, I need some advice. There's no love at home. I was like, okay, and when's the last time you said you, you love your parents? And she was shocked. Well, there you go. You're part of the problem. <laughs> Write them a letter. Say you love them. So this is a very important lesson concerning worship, brothers and sisters. Finally, what we need to focus on is the other part of what I want to bring to light, which is part of the sermon where the Prophet said, all mankind is from Adam and Eve. An Arab has no superiority over a non-Arab. No, a non-Arab has any superiority over an Arab. Also, white has no superiority over black, and a black has no superiority over white except by piety and good actions. And this links to the hadith in Sahih Muslim that the Prophet said that Allah doesn't look at your forms and your colors, but rather he, he sees what's in your hearts and your actions. Okay? So this is very important for us to understand. So why is it the need of the time? Well, it's one of the needs of the time because I would even argue from a tadabbar point of view, a pondering point of view, that the first greatest sin, one of the first greatest sins was actually racism. Shaitan was the number one racist. Why? Because he was told to bow down to Adam. He said, no, I'm different. I'm fire. He's clay. That was his, that was his response. Shaitan was the first racist. So if you're a racist, you're a shaitan, right? And this is what we need to really understand this carefully because what does shaitan do? He looked at his limited experiences, his limited ex perspectives, his limited aql, his limited understanding, his limited contingent dependent self and used that as a premise, as a foundation to claim something general. And that's the basis of racism. Generally speaking, uh, you know, I had a really bad experience with two black guys in my life, therefore all black guys are bad. I had a thousand bad experiences with daisies, therefore all daisies are bad, right? It doesn't work that way. That's actually the, uh, the intellectual form of racism, right? And the other forms which we could discuss later. But the point here is, this is one of the biggest diseases, especially in our ummah as well. And the reason I want to mention it, because we live in a time, especially in the West, especially actually in the whole of the West, the whole of Britain and Europe and America is now a center-right type of politics. And lots of people are using this as an anchor, as a hinge to basically open the door to this kind of fundamentalist nationalism. We're having it, right? The KKK, didn't you see the videos of the hands up, held Trump, right? This doesn't mean Trump's a bad guy, but look what's happening. Look what's happening, people. Look what's happening in Europe, an increase in Islamophobia. If you read the newspapers, you see that it's no different. Juxtapose them with the newspapers of Nazi Germany. Same narratives. I'll give you this channel, just Google it. Newspapers Nazi Germany with the Jews, newspapers in England and Europe, and you see what's happening. Just juxtapose them and you see it's exactly the same narrative. We, we, it's not all doom and gloom, by the way. But the point I'm trying to say is the reason I'm going to mention this as a lesson for our children, because our children must be beacons of light concerning this. They must understand our history, our tradition, and where we need to go. Even the likes of A.J. Toynbee. Look what she said. Look what he said. The extension of race consciousness as between Muslims is one of the outstanding achievements of Islam in the contemporary world.
And there is, as it happens, a crying need for the propagation of this Islamic virtue. This is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, maybe this is why he said, we were created from a male and a female, and made into different tribes and nations, into, for you to know one another. لِتَعَرَفُ To know one another. Do you know what this means? It doesn't mean come together on your commonalities. Look at the tafsir, look at the exegesis. It doesn't mean, oh, we have common things, we're going to come together, it's so happy. It doesn't mean that. It actually means know your differences. If you know what makes you different to somebody else, and you know why that person is different from you, and you explain that difference in a compassionate, intelligent, and human way, then those differences are not going to be excuses for hatred and for bias and for prejudice. This is a profound Islamic teaching. Very profound. Because there's no point talking about what brings us together because it's a given. I'm going to connect with you because you're a human being. We have similar needs, right? Easily. But the things that are bringing us apart, the things that are causing hatred and divisiveness and prejudice are the things that we're unsure about. Why is she covering her head? Why does he have hair on his beard? Why, do he have, why does he have to go and pray? Why are they not eating in this month? Just say, oh, forget that. Let's just come together in commonality. It's still not going to answer the question. It's still not going to prevent that fire of hatred and prejudice from emerging. We need to start talking about why we're different, but with compassion and intelligence. And when you show that that difference is human, it's valid, it's relevant, it comes from a compassionate tradition, even if they don't accept it, at least they won't hate anymore. And this is a profound Islamic teaching, a profound ayah in the Quran. Talk about what makes you different. Now, brothers and sisters, I had a rant yesterday, so I'm not going to tell you off about the internal racism. I've already done that. So let me just end with some good news. You know, the Orientalist and historian Hamilton Gibb, he said the following words, which I think should encourage us to basically look into our tradition and try to internalize his values at home. He said, But Islam has a still further service to render to the cause of humanity. It stands after all nearer to the rural east than Europe does, and it possesses a magnificent tradition of interracial understanding and cooperation. No other society has such a record of success uniting in an equality of status, of opportunity, and of endeavor so many and so various races of mankind. Islam has still the power to reconcile apparently irreconcilable elements of race and tradition. If ever the opposition, of the great societies of East and West is to be replaced by cooperation, the mediation of Islam is an indispensable condition. Brothers and sisters, we've got work to do. Let's internalize our tradition properly. It starts at home. It starts by being, not only knowing, and I, bless, and I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless every single one of you so we become beacons of light for the whole world and the whole community because people need this. You know, there's no point having a candle in the dark, right? or candle in one room, bring it out into your society. We have this noor, spread this noor. Start at home, and then work on others. And inshallah, it's going to happen. It's all good news. May Allah bless you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.